it's a, it's a joy to be able to come in here tonight. As Jim said, my name is Max, and um, if you don't know who I am, um, I am the senior high youth pastor. So normally on Wednesday nights, we're back in Mike's place. So um, when I was asked to speak um, on this night, it was, uh, it was a pleasure. So I'm, I'm very excited and I'm glad to see you guys here. Um, when I first was asked to teach tonight, I imagined that I would do something um, apart from what we are doing in our senior high series on Wednesday nights, which is looking at different encounters that Jesus has with people um, throughout the gospel. And my motivation for the series was to get to know the truths about Jesus through really digging into these different texts, you know, these different situations and these different scenarios that Jesus uh, and the people he comes in contact with. But it just so happened that the next encounter that we were going to look at is Jesus' first ever miracle that he performed, which I think a lot of you know what it is, is when he turned water into wine at a wedding. And because that's such a well-known story, but an often misinterpreted one and used out of context, I felt that it would be beneficial for, for you all, not just the senior high students if we dissect this text together um, and find out what it reveals about the person of Jesus and what it means for us, how it applies to us as believers. So if you have a Bible, would you open up to John um, chapter 2? We're going to read verses 1 through 11. I know Dr. Young uses a whiteboard a lot, like four people have asked me. I'm not going to use a whiteboard. I hope that doesn't offend anybody. Um, Just try to write down the points as we go. John 2, chapter one, uh, <clears throat> sorry, verses 1 through 11 says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Um, Let me pray over the text, and then we will um, jump in. Father, um, we thank you for tonight, Lord. Um, I thank you for your word and the fact that it is true. Uh, Lord, we thank you that it is reliable. Um, we thank you that, that it is infallible, Lord. In a world where um, the people believe there is no absolute truth, um, but yet, Lord, we hold fast to this word. Um, Father, I ask that you would just use me as a tool tonight, Lord. Uh, would you speak through me? Would you um, open eyes, Lord? Would you... Enable hearts to receive your truth, Father, maybe even someone who, who has hardened their heart towards you. Uh, Lord, would you do this for the kingdom's sake? And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
So it's a familiar story, and it starts out pretty straightforward. Um, Jesus is at a wedding, and his mom happens to be there, and he's with his disciples. But immediately, there's a problem. They've run out of wine. And so Mary goes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. And so we're going to start by looking at the response that Jesus gives to his mom. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, Roman Catholics gather from this text um, the events that happen here in this passage that Mary's intercession is what motivates Jesus to do the work, okay? Which is why so many Catholic people pray to Mary. This is the text where that comes from. But you're going to see that Jesus very clearly opposes and rebukes Mary. Um, He doesn't act under her control, but he rebukes her. Now, we need to understand, though, something, that the culture here is different than the culture now, okay? We read this. Some of you moms are reading this, and you're like, if my son called me woman, it would be one of those situations like, wait till your dad finds out how you talk to me, right? It would be incredibly disrespectful, but that wasn't the case here. Yes, it was abrupt. Yes, it surprised Mary, but it wasn't disrespectful. Uh, We see even more clearly, though, that this is a rebuke from the words that follow. Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? Now, that same exact phrase in the Greek is used five other times in the New Testament. And each time, a demon or demons are saying it to Jesus because he's entered into their domain and he's exerting power where they're in control. Uh, An example of this is in Matthew 8, 29. It says, behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? John Piper said the gist of this phrase that Jesus says to Mary seems to be, I don't want you pressing in here. You shouldn't be coming to me like this. This is not your affair. Now, we're not told exactly what Mary expected from Jesus in this situation, but based on his response, he doesn't approve of what she said, right? He pretty much says, hey, stay in your lane, What's fascinating, though, is that he goes ahead and he provides a solution to the problem by performing the miracle. So so why does he rebuke her and then do the miracle, right? He could have just said, yes, mom, I know that there's no wine. I'm going to take care of it. But he doesn't. And there has to be a reason for that. As the reader, when you read that, you ask yourself, why did he respond that way? Well, there's two reasons. One is because he wanted to make it clear to her that from now on, from this point forward, because his public ministry has begun, his obedience was no longer to her, his earthly mother, but it was to his heavenly father. What we see here is a very clear transfer of authority. She no longer would have influence or control over his decisions. She could no longer look at him as simply her son. But she, like the rest of the world, had to look at Jesus as the Messiah. That's the first reason. The second reason is this. He wanted to make it clear that his physical, earthly family had no special advantage to receiving salvation. Now, 
again, culturally, it's different, but this was, an, this was a real assumption that Jesus had to combat amongst his society, that his physical family had some sort of inside track, right? Kind of like if you go to a theme park and there's a fast pass. Well, Jesus is making it clear that that's not true. Um, listen to this example in Luke's gospel, chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. It says that a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to Jesus, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But Jesus responds and he says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Making it clear that even in the case of his own mother, there are no spiritual advantages. Another example is in Mark's gospel, uh, chapter three. Jesus is speaking to a group of people in a house and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? Then the text goes on to say that he looked at those in the house that sat around him and he said, here are my brothers and my mother. You see, Jesus's physical family had to receive him as their savior in the same way that every other one of his followers did. By grace, through faith. So Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine. And he essentially says, your relationship to me as my mother carries no weight here. You are a woman just like any other woman that is here. You have no claim on me. But then he says something interesting after this. He says, my hour has not yet come. So we hear that and we're like, what hour is he talking about? And why did Mary's comment about wine produce that response? Well, the answer to the first question, I think many of you know, um, this statement, my hour has not yet come, is mentioned seven times in John's gospel, including this one. And it's referring to the cross, the hour of Jesus's death and his resurrection. Now, the second question, why Mary's comment about wine produced this response is a little bit more difficult to answer. You know, one of the unique things, and, and some of you uh, have experienced this, but one of the unique things about studying scripture, trying to really exposit a text, is that you could read five different commentators who are all very reputable, uh, truth-speaking theologians, and they could all say something different about the same text. Um, and that was the case here when trying to determine why Jesus said this in this moment. I felt like we couldn't just ignore this because I thought to myself, if I am reading this and I have this question, I feel like when you hear it, you're gonna have the same question. So I wanna try to answer it um, for you. So again, the question is, what about Mary's comment produced this response of Jesus talking about the hour of his death? Um, one commentator suggested that maybe Jesus understood her request symbolically, um, that that Jesus remembered that the prophets characterized the messianic age as a time when wine would flow liberally. Now, Mary certainly didn't mean it this way. She was truly just saying, hey, Jesus, they're out of wine. Um, but yet, this commentator said maybe that's how Jesus interpreted it. And so he, he says to her, no, it's not time for that yet. However, I tend to agree more with another view. 
And this is the same view that John MacArthur holds, which is this. When he says to Mary, my hour has not yet come, Jesus is simply saying, the final hour of my death and resurrection is set by God. And all events that lead up to it are also determined by God. And you, Mary, are outside of the divine timetable. Does that make sense? He says, the final hour of my death and resurrection is set by God. And all of the events that are gonna happen before that are also set by God. And so Mary, by you coming to me, it's not your place. You are outside of this divine timetable. And, and the reason that I agree with this view is because if you look, it goes hand in hand with the comment directly before it. He makes the point to her that the things that take place leading up to his hour can't be determined or influenced by her or anyone else, only God. Now, as I pointed out before, he does perform the miracle, which, which shows that, that it was a part of the divine timetable, but not before he makes it clear to her that it's because of God's will that he's gonna do it. Do you see that? He's gonna do it not because Mary asked him to, but he does it because God, his father, has determined before the earth that this is gonna happen. So now let's shift gears a little bit and focus on the miracle of itself. John tells us two things about it in the text. Number one, he tells us that it was a sign. Okay, so, so what does that mean? It means that, we, that it points to something else. It depicts a spiritual truth. Jesus wasn't just going around doing miracles because it looked cool, right? Jesus wasn't just walking around doing miracles for the sake of doing miracles. By the second, uh, secondly, by doing the miracle, Jesus manifested his glory. Jesus reveals his glory through this miracle. So for the rest of our time, what I want to do tonight is I want to point out two ways through this sign that Jesus manifests or reveals his glory and what our response should be in return. So the first way that Jesus reveals his glory is this. Jesus reveals his glory as the ultimate purifier. That's the first point. Um, it's significant in the text how Jesus makes the wine. Did you notice that he fills jars that were not used for drinking, but for purification? Now, if you look at Mark chapter 7, you'll see that the Jews purified everything. Um, they washed their hands, they washed their utensils, they washed their plates. I mean, it was clean, 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 clean. And in this setting, at a wedding feast, where lots of people would be there for several days eating several meals, as a custom, they would go through ceremonial washings multiple times a day. So there was plenty of water there. So that kind of explains why there were six jars of water uh, roughly 120 to 180 gallons for cleansing. But here's the thing. It had nothing to do with cleanliness, right? They weren't germaphobes. It was about a ritual. It was about purification rituals and ceremonies that they had developed. That's why the purification jars were there. But when Jesus fills the purification jars with wine, he's saying 
those purification rituals, they're void. They're nullified. And that his death will replace them with a new way of purification by his blood. That's what John, that's what 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says. It says, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. So what Jesus does is a sign that is an acted out parable of his death. Do you see that? He says, it's not time yet, but what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna act out a sign that serves as a parable. It's gonna show you what my death is going to do. And it's right here in the text. This is the sign. Verses six through nine, it says, Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So when Jesus fills those jars up with water and turns them into wine, he's making the point that his death is the ultimate purification for sin. John says in chapter 6, verse 53, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Guys, you see, the problem with the Jewish purification rituals is that they were only external. They were only cleansing the outside. But the problem, as we know, is not with the outside. It's with the heart. That's what Matthew 15, 11 means when he says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This is what defiles a person. Jesus' shed blood is the only purification for sin. John the Baptist knew this when he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that is the first way that Jesus manifests his glory through this sign is by showing that he alone, once and for all, made the purification for sins. The second way is by revealing himself as the all-providing bridegroom. Now, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom several places throughout the Gospels. Um, John the Baptist calls him it in John 3 when he's talking to his disciples. The book of Revelation speaks of an eternal banquet um, it, it, the, the, uh, the wedding feast of all feasts that will take place at the end of time um, where Jesus, the bridegroom, will be reunited with his bride, who, by the way, that's us, believers. So guys, it's not accidental that Jesus' first miracle took place at a wedding where he completed something that the bridegroom could not do. So today, typically, not all the time, but typically, the bride's family pays for weddings, right? And it's just kind of, kind of the way it is. Um, now, not always, but usually. But during this time, the groom was responsible 
for all things financially that had to do with the wedding and the wedding festivities or what we would call a reception. And a big part of this responsibility was making sure that there was enough wine to last for the entire wedding celebration. Because wine was the single most important element of the entire thing. Now, we can kind of relate to this, right? If you've ever hosted any type of party, what's the number one thing that you want to know when you're hosting a party? How many people are coming? Because you've got to buy food, you've got to buy drinks, and you want to make sure that you don't run out, right? Um, we're, we're hosting a, um, a, a birthday party for our uh, three-year-old, she's almost three, Ava, for her birthday. And I guarantee the number one thing that Whitney wants to know is who's coming so we can make sure that we order enough pizza, right? The last thing we want is to be giving people half pieces at a birthday party. Now, it's obviously a much bigger deal when planning a wedding reception. And if you can believe it, weddings were an even bigger deal during this time than they are today. Any of you planning weddings right now? Let me give you a little anxiety. Weddings back then would last about a week. Um, so imagine trying to plan food and drinks for that. And on top of that, there was this social pressure. If the hospitality wasn't up to par, the groom and his family would be publicly shamed and embarrassed and would even be liable to a lawsuit because there were certain legal requirements when it came to hosting a wedding. And so knowing this, now you understand why it's such a big deal that they ran out of wine at the wedding. The story begins on the brink of a complete social disaster. And it was the groom's shortcoming. Verses 9 and 10 say, when the master of the feast, now the master of the feast was not the groom, but he was um, sort of the head waiter. When he tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, because we just learned that the wine is his responsibility, and he says to him, hey, listen, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunken fully, then they bring out the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. But the point is, he didn't. He didn't keep the good wine until then. He ran out, he failed. But Jesus fills the jars to the brim with the best possible wine that there is. He provides more than they even needed. Revealing himself as the perfect all-providing bridegroom. So what does that mean for us? What's so significant about Jesus replenishing the wine at a wedding? He obviously didn't do it so people could get drunk. It's significant because wine is a symbol of joy in the Bible. So when Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine. Her concern was not to promote drinking. She might as well have said they have no joy. So when we see Jesus fill the jars to the brim with the best wine, 
It's symbolic of the everlasting life and joy that only Jesus can provide. And we as Christians experience a taste of it here on earth, but we will experience it fully one day in heaven. And Jesus as the all-providing bridegroom, he never fails to give us what we need. And the life-giving wine of his death in our place never runs out, but it is abundant. So how do we respond? Verse 11 says that as a result of this miracle, after seeing his glory manifested, his disciples believed in him. They saw the sign and they believed. But, There's another group later on in John chapter 12, specifically verse 37, who also saw Jesus' signs, but they did not believe in him. So everyone in this room has now, like both of those groups, been exposed to the sign of salvation and eternal joy that Jesus came to the world to bring. So ask yourself, which group do you belong in? Everyone belongs in one. You've heard the sign. You know what it represents. Do you believe it? Or do you not? Revelation 19 verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Have you made yourself ready? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? You know. All right, let's pray. Hold on, I gotta silence my Amber alert. All right. Sorry, let me close in prayer. Father, um, we ask, Lord, that you would do what no man can, um, and that is that you would reveal this sign and that somebody would acknowledge their desperate need for a Savior. Father, so many of us have sought to find joy in other places. Lord, and it doesn't last. Lord, like the bridegroom at the wedding, we fail every time. But Lord, by the sign, you've showed us that that you and only you can provide an everlasting joy, an everlasting life that is accepted by grace through faith. So would you enable people in this room tonight to do that, Lord? Lord, I also pray that you would, um, that this would serve as an encouragement that people would, would, would realize the freedom that they have in Christ. That they have been washed by the blood of the Lamb and therefore there is now no condemnation for them. Lord, I thank you for this evening. Um, I pray that truth was received tonight. Uh, Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.